Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Too much information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your sultans of so what, the kings of crash, the colossus of clout, at least as far as useless trivia is concerned. I am Jordan Runtog, a.k.a. the great Jordino. And I'm Alex Igo, and I did not write a nickname for myself. <laughs> and today we are recognizing the unofficial end of summer with one of the best summer movies of all time. I'm talking about The Sandlot, a movie about youthful friendship in an idealized version of the early 60s. It's the kind of movie that'll make you nostalgic for a childhood you probably never had and probably no one ever had. And that's sort of the main point, as we'll discuss in this episode. In interviews, the writer and director of The Sandlot, a guy by the name of David Mickey Evans, frequently references a possibly apocryphal story of Walt Disney walking a bunch of dignitaries through a newly completed Disneyland in 1955. And as they walk down the avenue lined with shops and buildings designed to look like turn-of-the-century middle America, one of these dignitaries said, You know, Walt, you really nailed it. This is exactly the way it was back then. And Walt said, No, it's the way it should have been. No black people. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And that's very much the sensibility behind this movie. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so beloved. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about how baseball is not my thing. Yes. I definitely watched this movie at like sleepovers and in like middle school when the teacher was hungover and wanted to put on a movie. But I was a little too busy rewatching Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx to um pursue this on my own time. Oh, that's funny because, I mean, the 90s really had a surplus of kids in sports movies. And I think baseball really reigned supreme in that genre. Mm -hmm. You had Rookie of the Year, Little Big League, Angels in the Outfield, which I hasten to remind you featured an all-star cast including Danny Glover, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tony Danza, Christopher Lloyd, Adrian Brody, Matthew McConaughey, and Dermot Mulroney. Mm -hmm. Remember that one? You I sure do. One? But in addition to kids' baseball movies, you also have the Mighty Ducks series. You had Little Giants, which was a foray into football. 
And a somewhat cult favorite, The Big Green, starring the kid who played Ham Porter from The Sandlot, and the older sister from The Wonder Years, Olivia Diabo. Mm-hmm. But I'd argue that The Sandlot has all these beat as a fan favorite, and I was talking about this with my stepbrother the other day. He likened it to the Beatles movie A Hard Day's Night, which just proves I can relate anything back to the Beatles. In the same way that A Hard Day's Night had this almost supernatural quality of making you want to drop everything and start a band with your friends, The Sandlot made you feel the same way about wanting to drop everything and play a game of pickup baseball with your buds. I mean, did that... I know you're not really a baseball guy. Did that have any effect on you? Did this movie make you want to go play a game with uh, kids uh, down the street? No, I wanted to pretend martial arts fight kids. Um, okay. I was, <laughs> it was Power Rangers, Power Rangers and Jackie Chan yeah. for me. I don't, I don't know. I missed this. I missed this. Maybe we didn't have a baseball diamond near me. I don't know. I just, I missed this. Um, yeah. Not great. Amer- great American pastime. My ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the thing that's most interesting to me about The Sandlot is that it manages to avoid the old tried and true sports movie trope, probably best exemplified for our purposes in The Mighty Ducks, which I miswrote as The Mighty Dicks initially, <laughs> which is, I guess, the porn movie version. Uh, uh, you know, the whole trope of a ragtag group of misfits takes on the rich snobs. We get a little bit of that mid-movie in the Sandlot where they play the more professional team with you know the kids in the varsity jackets, but they move off that pretty quickly, which is a bold move because at its heart, the Sandlot is a movie about friendship and belonging and finding your people. You know, and maybe that's why it has the same pool as the Beatles movie. The camaraderie at its core is so strong. You want what they have. You want to be part of it. And many of the actors in the movie have gone on to say that they put Sandlot in a category with movies like Stand By Me and The Goonies yep. rather than sports movies. And I tend to agree. Yeah, I would I would second that. Um, you know what I just thought of when you said that was bigger for me it was Karate Kid. Oh, yeah. Okay. That I mean, that's a come kid's, on. It's a kid's sports movie. East Coast yeah. Italian guy who gets into martial arts and hates the rich people. That's my origin story, pal. Yeah. And I'm a, an indoor kid with social skills almost as poor as my sports skills. <laughs> and, uh, and this podcast is the story <laughs> of our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> The subtext of this entire podcast is discovering things about ourselves through discussing pop culture. Well, speaking of painful childhood memories, from the truly tragic childhood backstory that inspired this film in the first place, to the precedent-setting lawsuits sparked by the character of Squints, to the finer points of the vomit used during the chewing tobacco scene, the six-foot-tall puppet required to create the beast... And what happened when they let Dennis Leary loose around a group of kids? Here's everything you didn't know about the Sandlot. Well, before we talk about the Sandlot, we have to talk about the Sad Lot. <laughs> this movie is based on a true story from writer-director David Mickey Evans's childhood, but as we said at the top of the episode, it's an idolized version because his early life was deeply sad. He tells this story in the 25th anniversary documentary, Legends Never Die, on Fox. Evans' dad left home when he was a little kid. He just went for cigarettes or something and never came back. So his mother put him and his little brother into the family car and drove across the country from the East Coast to Southern California to try to find him. She eventually did find him, but he'd moved on with his life, in Evans' words, and didn't want anything to do with his former wife or his kids. So they found themselves starting over in a strange state, and like Scott Smalls, the main character in The Sandlot, Evans and his brother were the new kids. 
And their mom married a man who was not very nice to Evans. And to hear him tell it, he and his brother got bullied on our own block. We got bullied at school. We got bullied on the way back from school. And when we got home, we got bullied. So, a tough early life. In an effort to force her two boys to make friends, Evans's mom would throw him and his little brother out of the house to, like, Scott Small's mom in the sandlot, go make friends, go get dirty, go get into trouble. And in doing so, she effectively threw her kids to the wolves. And there was one particularly vicious gang who hung out at the end of their block and played baseball. And naturally, Evans and his brother were not invited to play with them. One day, these kids hit a baseball over a brick wall fence. Any of this sound familiar yet? Which is basically <laughs> the entire plot of The Sandlot. Evans's little brother was always hanging around hoping for a chance to play, hoping he'd finally get the invitation. So they talked him into hopping the fence and getting the ball back for him. You know, go over and get the ball and bring it back and maybe you can play with us. And this little kid was thrilled. This was his big chance to get on their good side and maybe, just maybe, finally make some friends. But when Evans's little brother hopped the fence, he was confronted with a massive, terrifying, ill-treated dog named Hercules, who chased him down and bit him quite badly. And as David Mickey Evans said, the boys all knew what was going to happen, and they laughed at his little brother as he was walking, bleeding back home. And Evans said, I really hated those guys for a long, long time into my adult years. I mean, until the baseball part, that's the plot of Karate Kid. He moves oh, from Jersey yeah, to man. Southern California, he gets wow, bullied. Yeah, yeah man. Oh, man, I didn't even think of that. Rich text. Yeah. But Evans would get the last laugh. By the early 90s, he was a hotshot screenwriter in Los Angeles, and he sold his script for a movie called Radio Flyer for over a million dollars, making him one of the highest paid writers around at the time. Do you remember this movie? Nope. I remember Radio, the Cuba Gooding Jr. movie. No, no, different movie. Radio Flyer with Elijah Wood, Alec Baldwin, John Hurd, and an uncredited Tom Hanks as the narrator. Bing! This is, yes, we have our, our first Hanks connection, and I think our only one of this episode. This is another deep well of childhood sadness. And like The Sandlot, it borrows a lot from Evans' childhood. I remember this movie quite well. It was extremely upsetting. Young mother moves from the East Coast to the West with her two young boys. Mary's a man who turns out to be an abusive alcoholic who beats her kids behind her back. And the whole movie is spent with these kids scheming how to escape. It's one of the bigger bummer kids movies I've ever seen. Jesus. Um, anyway, Radio Flyer is supposed to be David Mickey Evans's directorial debut, which makes sense considering it obviously has a lot of personal connections to his childhood. But the studio decided at the last minute that he was too inexperienced and they unceremoniously removed him from the film 10 days into production. He was bummed, to put it mildly, and the director chair was given to Richard Donner, late of the Goonies, Scrooged, and the Lethal Weapon, and Superman series, so he had some big hits under his belt. And Donner dispensed some hard truths to David Mickey Evans, uh, wrapped in the guise of encouraging words, I guess. Everyone gets a second chance in Hollywood, but nobody gets a third chance. <laughs> So the pressure was on for Evans to make his next film a good one. So he's racking his brain, trying to think of a movie idea that would be more suitable for a rookie director. In his words, a small contained film with a limited number of locations, a limited number of characters, and a simple but clean idea. And he's stuck in L.A. traffic one day, and he's bored. I'm thinking of the opening scene of La La Land. And he recalls the incident from his childhood with Hercules the dog and his little brother. And the plot just came out. One line, a bunch of kids during the summer have to get a baseball back from a mean dog. 
And unlike Radio Flyer, which was a pretty brutal portrayal of the worst elements of being a kid, being helpless and afraid and abused, this new movie was going to be the opposite. As Evan said, the whole movie is really me rewriting my childhood because I turned all those bullies into heroes. And he made The Lost Ball, signed by Babe Ruth and worth $3 million. As he told the website The Score, the Sandlot isn't the way my childhood was. The Sandlot was the way my childhood should have been. After writing the first paragraph of that script, I never had negative thoughts about those bullies from my childhood again. So at least it was cathartic for him. And he took a very active role in putting this very personal story together. In addition to directing and co-writing the script, he also served as the film's narrator. That's him. I didn't know that. I, man, that is rough. <laughs> yeah. I, although, if you're going to get kicked off uh, your movie. You could do worse than Richard Donner. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's a great line, though. You always get a second chance in Hollywood, yeah. never a third. That's really good. Yeah. The original title of the film was Boys of Summer, but it was changed not to avoid a lawsuit with uh, Don Henley, which is surprising because. Don Henley loves to sue people. Um, but because an author by the name of Roger Kahn had written a book of the same name in 1972 about the Brooklyn Dodgers, their fabled team from 1955. As Evans told Sports Illustrated, I changed it to the Sandlot because Roger Kahn threatened to sue me upside down and backwards. And God love him, he was right. <laughs> that takes a brave man to admit that. He said the irony is that the Sandlot in the film wasn't originally written as a Sandlot. It was an elementary school recess yard. It's a lot rougher when you uh, have kids sliding around on asphalt. <laughs> it's the sand, right? Oh, man. We're getting into that league of their own uh, thigh, oh, thigh injuries. injuries. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, with the script of the film ready, it was time to begin casting. And this was a long and arduous process where the producers mixed and matched actors and characters trying to get the right blend for the film. They originally planned on casting kids who were around 9 or 10 years old, closer to the age that Evans was when the origin story of Hercules the dog occurred. But as the casting progressed, it became apparent that the cast needed to be older. Uh, apparently the prevalent comment that they got was, oh my god, they look like babies. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, they bumped the age range of the kids to 12 or 13. With Evans telling SportsIllustrated.com, we knew it was the right decision instantly because the first kid that we interviewed was Mike Vitar, who played uh, Benny Rodriguez. While we're talking about Benny the Jet, would you describe him as the most iconic part of this film? From the PF Flyers, the, P the shoes on down. Good looking dude. From yeah. the shoes... He's got a good face. <laughs> He's visited in his dreams by Babe Ruth, and ultimately he gets the happiest end. Would you say the happiest ending? Yeah, he goes on to play on the Dodgers. Yeah. yeah. He's played by a Cuban-American actor, Mike Vitar, who got his big break when he was just 12 years old. And uh, the casting manager saw him standing in line at a carnival. Good Lord. Can you imagine that? That's a Bruce Springsteen song. Ha! <laughs> uh, you know, the adult actor actually looks a lot like the kid version. And that is because they got the kid's older brother, Pablo, to play the adult version of Benny when he's playing on the Dodgers. I guess the pro, the the actual Dodgers who are in that scene were not actually Dodgers, which is depressing. They were played by cast members from the film. Crew members. Like they got like the grip and stuff like that. The best boy? Cool, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's going to be cool to have like kind of a grunt job on a film. Be like, all right, well, you got a day playing baseball at Dodgers Stadium. I'm like, that's pretty great. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Uh, and then you get hit with a fastball from Randy Johnson and explodes your head like that bird. Uh, it's the only bit of baseball trivia I know. Um, Mike really found his niche in the 90s kids sports movies. He also starred in D2, The Mighty Ducks, and D3, also The Mighty Ducks. Um, <laughs> do you remember the kid's name? Oh, what was the kid's name? Um, he was a kid who can skate really fast, but he can't stop. That's my main memory. I forget his character's name. Emilio the Jet Estevez. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> also, the kid who played in the Sandlot, who plays the pitcher in the Sandlot, Kenny De Nunez, is uh, in MD2. But you didn't come to this podcast to listen to uh, us pontificate about different guys whose nicknames are Latin and the Jet. You came to listen to Smalls, the Smalls Corner. <laughs> A little part of this podcast we like to call the Smalls Corner. The start of the movie undoubtedly is a 11 year old kid named Tom Geary who won the role despite the fact it was one of the first auditions he had ever been on. He didn't even get the part originally. The role was between him and another kid and he flew all the way back from LA to the East coast, ready to give up on acting for good. And then the other kid fell through and they called up Tom to the big leagues. Similar thing uh, happened to the kid who played. Yeah. Yeah. Too. He was a last minute replacement. And to uh, Ralph Macchio. Really? Nope, I'm making that up. Oh. Uh, the character of Scott... <laughs> just tying everything back to Karate Kid. Um, yeah, Scott Small's famously not a great baseball player before he's taken uh, into a mentorship by Benny the Jet. But the actor, Tom Geary, was actually pretty good at baseball in uh, IRL. We talked about, um, in League of Their Own, how some of the people had to dumb down in the racing scene, right? Isn't it... Um, Kit. Who plays Kit? Lori Petty. Lori Petty had to like run slower. Slower it's, it's than Gina Davis. It's easier to run slower than to like miss a ball that's going right for you. Like there's a scene when he gets hit in the face with a ball. Yeah, how do you fake that? <laughs> Just eat it in the face. <laughs> um, but yeah, he had to take lessons on it. You know, he was coached how to look on like how to be bad. Yeah. He told Time Magazine, uh, I know my little league coach was pretty upset when he saw the movie. <laughs> But, you know, aside from that, he did bring a lot of himself to the role. He said, I remember moving when I was little, moving around, and it was hard for me to make friends. I think as an actor, you always bring a part of yourself into the role. So in order to establish the close bond between the actors of Benny and Smalls, David Mickey Evans, the director and writer, had the two actors meet and rehearse together weeks before the rest of the kids showed up to film. And it worked so well that the other actors playing the kids in the film thought that they had been friends for, for a long time. It's a good move. Yeah, it's smart. Um, probably the other nicknamed kid you can really think of in this film after the jet and, <laughs> and Smalls is Squints. How do you pronounce this kid's name? Uh, Michael Squints Paladoras. Paladoras. Played by, in the tradition of actors, time immemorial. You get a, a Greek guy to play an Italian guy. <laughs> <laughs> Vice versa. Yeah. He's played by a kid named Chauncey Leopardi. Which sounds like he belongs in one of our British niche music episodes. <laughs> I think it was later uh, on but, Freaks and Geeks. Oh, I good for so. Chauncey. Uh, <laughs> according to the actor who played Smalls, Tom Geary, nothing at all like uh, the guy he played. He said he'd wear the nerdiest clothes and the thick glasses, and as soon as they would call rap, he'd be in humongous jeans down to his knees and a backwards hat and blasting gangster rap. So if that doesn't ruin your image of squints, I don't know what will. A pair of Jinkos. 
Uh, but he was like his character in that, like Squints. He was kind of a, <laughs> in your words, a bit of a horn dog. He <laughs> was not above manipulating circumstances to get what he wanted. Apparently, in exchange for behaving himself on set, this kid Chauncey Leopardi demanded a copy of the current issue of Playboy from the DP on the film, director of photography, He's like uh, Anthony Richmond. Yeah. He says he bought one on his lunch break for the kid. And he said everything was fine after that. This kid blackmailed the DP on his <laughs> film for porn. <laughs> That's a power move. Uh, Leopardi would not confirm or deny this. He told the score. I've heard that story before. I honestly don't remember, but it probably happened. Bribery is the quickest way to get to somebody's heart, right? Good for you, Squints. Good lord. Yeah, all these kids are true characters, and they do such a great job of carrying off this movie that I completely forgot that Scott Small's parents are played by two serious heavy hitters. Karen Allen, who will forever be Marion Ravenwood from the Indiana Jones movies in my heart, and Dennis Leary. I completely Hmm. forgot Dennis Leary was in this. The kid who played Smalls told Time, I was expecting him to show up on the set with a leather jacket and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, talking really fast. I remember saying to my mom at the time, he's so different from how I thought he'd be. He and Karen Allen were both great to work with. And Dennis Leary's famously from Massachusetts, a fellow Worcester County boy, just like me. And even if you don't give a damn about baseball, if you're from Massachusetts, you're hardwired to hate the Yankees. That's just how it is. And this caused a problem with Dennis when the prop master handed him a baseball glove for the scene where he tries to bond with his new stepson Smalls by playing catch. And Dennis put the glove on, started punching it with his fist to break it in. And then he looked down and horror spread across his face and immediately took the glove off and said, I'm not wearing this. Get me another one. The prop master looked at it and it was a Mickey Mantle signature glove. And Dennis Leary would not wear a glove endorsed by one of the most famous Yankees of all time. I just love that. The last member of the Sandlot team to be cast was Hamilton Ham Porter, the husky redheaded wiseacre played by Pat Renner. Finding the right blend of wit and warmth proved difficult for producers, and they were still looking the day the rest of the cast were getting on a plane to Salt Lake City to begin filming. According to David Mickey Evans, the director, Pat nailed the audition, and he told them, you're in, and you got a plane to make, kid. (laughs) Get on the plane! (laughs) Ham's finest hour in this movie, aside from the gripping explanation of how you make a s'more, which we'll get to later, was the scene where the Sandlot gang are facing off against the snooty, varsity-jacketed-wearing kids. And there are actually two. There's the scene where they first challenge each other, and it's like gunfight at the OK Corral, where they, you know, the two teams are lined up nose-to-nose, and they just trade rapid-fire insults. You know, moron, scab-eater, pus licker, some really gross ones. Culminating with the insult of all insults, you play ball like a girl. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it hasn't aged well, but it's no. pretty, pretty par for the course, though, especially in the in this era. I also like, you know, I remember talking shit like this when I was a kid. Yeah, Evans has been asked about that line because, again, he wrote the script in addition to directing it. And he's uh, defended it on the grounds of it being authentic to the period. He told USA Today recently, in the context of 2018, obviously I would never write that line. It wouldn't resonate and nobody would understand it and they would find it offensive. You're talking about a movie that took place in 1962. So if I was to make The Sandlot again today, taking place in 1962, 
No, I wouldn't change that line. Of course not. He's not wrong. Mm. I don't know. There's also the scene a few minutes later when they're actually playing the game and Ham's behind the plate. He's the catcher, remember? And he's taunting the batters like, hurry up, batter. It's going to be a short game and I have to get home before lunch. And of course, my personal favorite, if my dog was as ugly as you, I'd shave his butt and make him walk backwards. That's a tremendous insult. That's That's Rickles level. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. It's incredible. The insults for at least this home plate scene, possibly both scenes, were unscripted and improvised on the day. And David Mickey Evans fed the off-the-cuff insults to Ham as they were shooting the scene, and they were just workshopped on the fly between them. And yeah, I'd say that's Ham's finest hour. (laughs) Hashtag Ham's finest hour. (laughs) Tweeted us using that about this episode. As you meditate on that, We'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Everything on the set of this movie was man-made because even though it's set in Southern California, the San Fernando Valley, it was shot in Utah. (laughs) Often called the San Fernando Valley (laughs) of whatever part of the country. Of Utah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, the tax break capital of of this era of film, right? Like, it's in the past 20 years. I have no idea. Well, in the past 20 years, it's been Georgia, right? Like, everything is shot in Georgia nowadays because the... I think this comes in with like legislatures and whoever like passed these really aggressive tax breaks and becomes the place du jour to shoot. And they needed that because this movie was made for nothing. Seven million dollars, which will get you like 
what, a couple canisters of film on a Christopher Nolan shoot these <laughs> days? Good Lord. And craft services, if you're lucky. Um, yeah, they made the Sandlot out of an empty field on someone's private property and then built the backstop, dirt, grass, trees, fences, Mr. Myrtle, the Timmons' house, both backyards. And it never reverted from being private property. You cannot go there. Uh, you try and visit it in uh, Utah. You find no trespassing signs posted everywhere. And apparently it has passed into local legend. The owner does not want you there. <laughs> if you're a devoted Sandlot fan making a pilgrimage to Utah, out of luck. Don't do it. Uh, and, you know, there were also houses completely surrounding the property. So unless you are actively courting the wrath of a Utah property owner, <laughs> you can't see it. Sorry. They even built the trees on this. You know, the treehouse scenes are such a big part of this film. Um, that's where they make the erector set pieces to try and get one over on the beast. And they needed to actually buy, they wanted to buy an actual oak tree for the film. But again, seven mil doesn't get you a tree. <laughs> you don't get a tree. <laughs> it's not the budget. So uh, they, they you know. These things go for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. To buy like a hundred year old oak tree that costs apparently, according to interviews with David Mickey Evans, like a hundred grand. Yeah. And so one day one of the crew members was on his way to the production office and he saw a guy in his front yard, apparently kismet, about to cut down a massive oak tree in his yard. The beautiful century old oak tree was starting to, as they do, uh, cause problems with the foundations of the house. You know, once the roots get in there, you're just looking at all kinds of structural problems. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta take that guy down. Uh, and they needed to get rid of it. So the crew member asked if he could have the tree, and Salt Lake City's uh, utility companies removed power and telephone lines so the tree could be hauled away in a flatbed, um, cemented to the ground. <laughs> They have hot glue guns not available. Uh, and, you know, becomes a, an indelible part of the film. And uh, much like when they filmed Halloween in uh, Pasadena, even though that movie is set in Haddonfield, Illinois, they um, replaced the original oak leaves on this tree with wire and satin green leaves. Uh, although on Halloween, they famously did it with actual dead leaves that they brought in uh, and stuffed in garbage bags <laughs> and strewn them individually across wherever they were shooting and then went and collected them in between shots. Speaking of Halloween, my favorite film director of all time, John Carpenter. Great segue here. I'm going to go ahead and declare it. Sandlot and Halloween occupied the same cinematic universe. Go on. De devoted fans of the Halloween franchise and God love you. We've suffered a lot. Uh, the misbegotten later era sequels starting with Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. These were all shot in Utah, again for tax reasons. Uh, Vincent Drugstore is uh, one of the famous locales in the movie. Michael goes there to get his new knife and mask in 4. Uh, an actual drugstore in the town of Midvale, Utah. Sadly, no longer operational, but still standing. Um, shows up again in Halloween 5. Halloween dorks will remember that is where Rachel takes her um, adopted sister, Jamie, played by Danielle Harris, if memory serves correctly, to pick out a costume. And Michael is also in there. But the Vincent drugstore that you're referring to is where the Sandlot gang goes to buy their new ball. And it's actually 
a store, as you mentioned, in the town of Midvale, Utah. Uh, as of early 2022, still standing. You can Google Street View it. We should go there. I'd like to. <laughs> I mean, you can go to the pool for the squints kiss scene. There's a lot of stuff that's still around. You know, Midvale is often called the Paris of Utah. And Utah is often called the, the Southern California of Utah. Because it was made on such a shoestring, they shot the entire movie in just 42 days. That's just six weeks, or around the same time as the average American kid's summer vacation, which also might explain the limits on how long they had to shoot. They probably did a lot of this in between, you know, kids' school schedules. The interior shots for the aforementioned treehouse, specifically the scene where Squints is telling the story of the beast, you know, forever. forever. Yeah. Uh, that was shot on a soundstage in L.A., but pretty much everything else was shot on location in Utah. The only downside of shooting during the summer vacation months was that it was extremely hot. Salt Lake City was in the midst of a massive heat wave all the production took place, which made things difficult on the poor young cast who were running around in relatively heavy 60s clothes. One day, the temperature broke 105 degrees, and the actor playing Smalls became so overheated that he fainted and fell into a cameraman. Jesus. Ironically, the only day that it wasn't hot as hell was the day they had to film the scene where the boys go to the pool. In the movie, that's the hottest day of the year, and they deem it too hot to play. In real life, it was the coldest day of the shoot, and the kids were freezing as they soaked in 56-degree water. Good lord. Writer-director David Mickey Evans points out that in this scene where Squints is staring at Wendy Peppercorn, who we'll talk about in a moment, his teeth are chattering. You can see it in the final shot. It's because he's freezing to death, Evans said. <laughs> he would go on to praise actor Chauncey Lepardi, who played Squints, for being such a trooper. And this brings us to the pool scene, a scene that some find adorable, others find pervy. I have to admit, I sort of found it messed up, even as a little kid watching this movie. But for those of you who don't know, which if you don't, I can't believe you made it this far in this episode, Squints <laughs> has a crush on the beautiful older lifeguard at the town pool, the glamorous Wendy Peppercorn. I thought it was Wendy Peppercorn for years, which I kind of like better, but Wendy Peppercorn. Uh, so he fakes his own drowning in order to receive mouth-to-mouth resuscitation from her and go in for a kiss. Actor Chauncey Lepardi knew that he had this scene coming for weeks, and he was a 12-year-old kid. He was very anxious about it, a mix of terror and excitement. Every day, he'd come onto the set and ask the director if this was his big day, and director David Mickey Evans says he purposely wouldn't give Chauncey a schedule or call sheets. He wanted to just have his anxiety and tension just escalate. Finally, the big day came, and Squints was ecstatic. In order to keep the emotions as authentic as possible, which wasn't hard considering all the 12-year-olds on the set had a crush on Wendy, Evans shot everything sequentially to help the kids keep everything clear in their head, as he said. But they wouldn't film the kiss until the director delivered a very important message to the young actor. Before the camera started rolling, Evans pulled the actor who played Squints aside for a very serious discussion. Listen to me, he said. You keep your tongue in your mouth, understand? (laughs) Given the whole Playboy thing, it seems like a very necessary warning. But Chauncey came through like a champ. David Mickey Evans later said, he asked how it went. I said, pretty darn good, man. I'm going to print that one. And then Chauncey said, okay, but maybe let's do it one more time. (laughs) 12-year-olds. And as I said, they all predictably fell in love with the actress playing the beautiful lifeguard. Her name was Marley Shelton. 
Uh, child actors, I guess, often develop crushes on their older fellow actors on the set. It's kind of an occupational hazard. This famously happened on the set of Harry Potter when the actor playing Draco Malfoy, Tom Felton, crushed very hard on Helena Bonham Carter. I love that so, one because he completely bypasses Emma Watts and goes straight for Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah. Who among us? Right. Yes. <laughs> but man, God love him. <sighs> Oh, wait, there's a tribute to one of your favorite movies, Cool Hand Luke, in the Wendy Pfeffercorn scene. Absolutely. Can you do a George Kennedy impression? I, I can. I feel like you can, though. I didn't prepare it. He has such a specific timbre to his voice. I don't think I can do it. Other than, you know, no man can, no man can eat 50 eggs. They should have put <laughs> that in there. No man can eat 50 s'mores. <laughs> oh my um, god, you're right. You know, it's a scene where all the boys are watching Wendy. You gotta do it. You gotta do it. She don't know what she's doing. Yes, she does. She knows exactly what she's doing. That's <laughs> not bad. Uh, it's an homage to the scene in the classic 1967 Paul Newman movie, Cool and Luke. When Luke and George Kennedy's character Dragline are watching a woman wash her car with their fellow convicts on the chain gang. Um, it's gotta be intentional those lines are identical yeah it's the same era there's no way it's not did you do, yeah. do you really find them not going on the record about that i didn't see any i didn't find anything about that no yeah. it's gotta be yeah uh though the scene with wendy pfeffercorn and the kiss isn't based on a true story the character of wendy pfeffercorn herself is actually based on a person from writer director david mickey evans's real life there was a lifeguard named bunny at the public pool where he hung out as a kid and she was beautiful and always wore a one-piece red bathing suit. And Evans later told USA Today, when I was a little kid in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California in the 70s, there were public pools and you could go all day for 50 cents. At those pools, the lifeguards were perennially tan and handsome and beautiful. And they sat up on those big chairs and they all wore standard issue L.A. County red trunks or one-piece suits. And as a little 11, 12, or 13-year-old, you literally had to look up at them. And they were like goddesses, really, up on a pedestal. I love that. And the actress who played her, Marley Sheldon, later had an extremely varied acting career, appearing in slashers like Grindhouse and Sin City, and also rom-coms like Pleasantville and Never Been Kissed. She's in Sin City? That's so funny. Yeah. I, all these San Fernando horn dogs making movies, man. Uh, you know, Licorice Pizza is about oh. Paul Thomas Anderson having a crush on uh, the Haim sisters' mom. So, okay, is the story behind that he's had a crush on his teacher yeah. and grew up and then somehow met the Heim sisters and then the Heim sisters invited him over to their house and then the Heim's mom walked in and it dawned on him that, oh my God, you're the teacher that I had a crush on and he had no idea and I then cast yeah. Alana Heim to basically play her mom in Licorice Pizza. Is that, do I have that right? I believe, I don't know if that's, if he like didn't put it together before then, but yeah, I mean, certainly the making of the, like, I mean, you know, he also cast his biggest collaborators. Uh, yes, son. Son as himself. I didn't realize that was Philip Seymour Hoffman's kid until like, weeks after seeing that movie which oh really made, i thought yeah. there's i i maybe because i was primed to knowing that to go into it but i was like there's certain like mannerisms that he does where i was like ah jesus that is like yeah that's yeah, yeah. in san fernando valley man what is it what are they putting in the water over there <laughs> but as it turns out squints was also based on a real life person a classmate of writer director david mickey evans the real squints was named michael polydoros as opposed to Michael Paladoris, 
very, very slight name difference. A little too close because the real life Michael Polidoros objected to the way that he was depicted in the movie and actually sued 20th Century Fox for invasion of privacy and exploitation of his likeness. I guess in addition to the similarity of the names, part of the case involved the fact that he also wore glasses. Mm. (laughs) However, had he won this case, he could have received damages and even a share of the film's profits, but the case was dismissed two years later after the judge ruled that there wasn't enough similarity between Polidoros and the fictional character of Squint's Polidoros to justify the case. Plus, he waited like six years after the movie came out. So, I don't know. Maybe they thought it sounded like kind of a cash grab. Yeah. This actually proved to be something of a landmark case because it set the precedent that movies could feature characters that were loosely based on real-life people. Robert Wyman, who represented 20th Century Fox, said that the court's decision, quote, should give motion picture and television companies a great deal of comfort when they inadvertently use someone's name or personal character traits in what is clearly a fictional piece. I guess the real-life squints appealed the case all the way up to the California Supreme Court, which is impressive, but they refused to take up his appeal. Good Lord. Yeah. Unlike the Sandlot itself, which, as we mentioned, is private property, you could actually visit and swim in the very same pool used in this scene. It's the Lauren Farr Swimming Pool located in the town of Ogden, Utah. And it's actually a good 40 minutes from where the rest of the movie was shot in Salt Lake City, so bear that in mind if you're planning on taking a... uh, Sandlot pilgrimage. Plan accordingly. Uh, there's a song by um, the Drifters that comes on every time the gang encounters Wendy. There goes my baby, which is a Cat Stevens song, right? Or is that a different "There Goes My Baby"? That's a different "There Goes My Baby." Yeah. Son of a bitch. And also this magic and moment. this magic moment. That's the classic one. But probably the most memorable musical moment in the Sandlot, aside from the Ray Charles fireworks scene, is when the boys go to the carnival eat a bunch of Big Chief chewing tobacco, a.k.a. Chaw, go on, the, <laughs> go on the Twister ride and lose their lunch all over the shoes of the fairgoers below to the strains of the classic 50s sax instrumental Tequila by the Champs, also featured notably in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, yeah. In the bar scene, yeah. Right. Yeah, interesting they wanted to pick Wooly Bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, but... Um, Poor Sam the Sham had fallen on hard times and was <laughs> Sham Shaman doesn't pay what it used to. <laughs> Trying to squeeze him for the licensing rights. Uh, and again, you know, the cigar chomping executive was not having it. <laughs> you don't get Sam. You get the drifters. <laughs> Uh, this scene required, uh, you know, this scene required very little acting from these kids because the chew. Do you ever chew chewing tobacco? I can't imagine you've ever. No. You ever smoked a cigarette in your life, Jordan? No. Yeah, I can't imagine. Well, that. I grew up going to bowling alleys, and so I have a like. I smell secondhand smoke, and it like clears my head. Yeah. Like I love the smell of smoke so much. Yeah. So I and I and I'm also a, a man of. Uh, ruled by their passion, shall we say. So I, I never went near it because I just felt like I would probably like it way too much. I've never done a single bit of chewing tobacco in my life. I can't imagine. The chew that they gave these kids was licorice and beef jerky. Huh. Uh, Chauncey Leparty. <laughs> Chauncey Leparty. Squints. Hashtag Chauncey Squints Leparty. Later told Yahoo Sports, it was easy to act like you wanted to puke. 
Uh, and then some of these kids ended up swallowing it. Oh, good lord. Upwards of 15 takes on the twister to get this uh, scene down. Didn't help. Tom Geary, the kid who played Smalls, told Time at first it was like, yeah, you know, this isn't so bad. But by the 15th go round, it was like, this is getting a little uh, ellipsis. End quotes. <laughs> Some of them actually got sick uh, while they were filming this, but fake vomit was a little more uh, photogenic. So they went with I the, saw the uh, dailies. <laughs> Get him back out there. Put him back on the twister ride. Uh, <laughs> folks, if you're just tuning in, we have the recurring character of the cigar-chomping Hollywood executive who looms large in the Too Much Information <laughs> podcast backstory. Um, the time-honored tradition of using split pea soup for vomit. You'll f- oh, remember yeah. that was famously used in The Exorcist. Uh, but they added a little baked beans, oatmeal, and uh, gelatin. Give it that heft. When yeah. it hits the shoes, it's got a splatter. <laughs> Good lord, that is foul. I just got a little rise in my throat at baked beans. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, much like a league of their own, before shooting would even start, the uh, they had to make sure these kids could play ball. And, you know, the whole thing about a sports movie is that if the kids whiff these shoots, you got to reset everything not just line readings and lighting but you got to reset the entire choreography of having this entire team running around and then if you're going to cut around those kids you have to do all these inserts of shooting the kids in close-up or mids and then cutting around it and having i don't know shoot one kid throwing and then shoot some other kid you know catching it and then yeah and again the cigar chomping executive had slashed the budget to this to nothing uh craft services were literally just you know beef jerky and licorice (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so following the audition process the kids spent two weeks in a baseball camp in california Uh, where they were taught how to hit, catch, and throw. Apparently, their coach for this camp, Daniel Zacapa, actually played Squint's grandfather in the flashback scene. Um, We mentioned earlier the Ray Charles scene. Ray Charles' beautiful rendition of America the Beautiful plays during the night game on the 4th of July. Fireworks are going up. And the scene features one complex shot. Benny the Jet hits a ball into the outfield where it rolls right in front of the camera lens which was lying in the foreground of the shot. These days, they would just do that in CGI. But back in the 90s, they had to literally set up the camera and hit the ball to exactly the same shot, which they somehow managed to do in the very first take. In the annals of the great first take sports shots, I mentioned this in an earlier episode. I don't remember if you cut it or not. No, I kept it. Okay, in Alien Resurrection, the misbegotten fourth entry in the... um, Alien franchise directed by Amelie director Jean-Pierre Genet. Sigourney Weaver does a behind-the-back um, half-court shot and nailed it on the first take and it ruined the take because everyone lost their <laughs> sh- And I believe, though, the insert that they use of Ron Perlman is his genuine reaction to that. Anyway, sorry. So it's this and Alien Resurrection. <laughs> The greatest first take sports shots of all time. Um, they actually used a pitching machine, though. They cheated. Son of a bitch. I should have read that beforehand. Uh, that allows you to adjust the trajectory of a ball. I guess like the classic tennis ball serving machine that you see in a um, bunch of movies. But uh, as David Mickey Evans observed, the odds of us launching a baseball 200 and some odd feet and having it land and roll right up into a camera lens are what? 10 million to one? 
But the first take, it was perfect. That was really weird. Amen, buddy. Uh, the s'mores scene, on the other hand, pitched at the the opposite end of the <laughs> efficiency spectrum. <laughs> you know, the scene in which probably the most immortal line in this film, you're killing me, Smalls. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Before explaining what a s'mores is and how to make one, seems like an easy scene. But it was actually one of the most difficult scenes to shoot because the kids couldn't stop laughing. Much like this podcast. Uh, Tom Geary said it took about 12 takes because once one of them started laughing, the other ones just couldn't stop breaking. And if you look closely enough during that scene, you can see Mike Vitar in the background. Um, AKA Benny. Yep, Benny. Uh, you can see this look in his eyes. It's like, please just cut away so I can burst. I can burst into laughter. It's like in Doctor Strange Love when Peter Sellers is doing his whole like Nazi salute thing with his arm and one of his I can hands walk. Is, is trying to strangle his own throat. The actor playing the uh the Russian ambassador or diplomat or whoever it was behind him is in the final take of the movie. You can see he's like visibly laughing and the actor who played him said like he can't watch the movie because it's just you don't totally notice it but when you actually know that that's what's going down you watch the movie now it's absurd like this guy is clearly breaking character and just laughing at peter sellers going crazy but stanley kubrick would let sellers go i was gonna say i'm surprised kubrick let that stand you know? Well, he loved those. Like, I mean, just all the energy of the first takes with Peter mm-hmm. Sellers was what he went for. And then the more, because Peter Sellers could never repeat anything. That was his whole deal. So sure. Kubrick would have like five cameras set up to get coverage of everything Sellers was doing at all times so that he only had to do one, two takes at most. And yeah, they just went with it. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. 
For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Well, as you can imagine, the set of The Sandlot was a lot of fun for a group of tween boys on summer vacation. As the actor who played Smalls later said, it was pretty much just playing baseball, swimming, or going to a carnival. For an 11-year-old, you really couldn't ask for a better movie to be in. It was like summer camp. And director David Mickey Evans tried to foster this sense that they weren't even making a movie. He later explained his M.O., saying, They were just hanging out, playing baseball, and oh, there are cameras here. I tried to keep it loose and fun, like, pretend this is baseball summer camp, man. Don't act. Be yourselves, and I'll take care of everything. And that's how we did it. (laughs) He likened it as, like, chasing squirrels and herding cats, which (laughs) a bunch of 11, 12-year-old boys, I am sure. Yeah. But being 12-year-old boys, they got up to a certain amount of mischief. The Playboy story with Squint sort of sets the tone for this one. During the 25th anniversary cast reunion on ESPN, Marty York, the kid who plays Yaya, recalled that Tom Geary, the actor played Small's older brother, offered to sneak them into a showing of the R-rated Basic Instinct starring Sharon Stone. The viewing was ah. quite memorable for the young actors. Uh, Victor DiMattia, who played Timmy, described it as, quote, a big moment for a 12-year-old. Movie would have blown my damn mind if I saw it. <laughs> it's just been like catatonic, like stare, like Vincent D'Onofrio in Full Metal Jacket, just staring into middle distance, glazed look in my eye. <laughs> to bring it back to the Kubrick reference, yes, 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 yes. And a third Kubrick, another Doctor Strange. We're bringing it back. That's a that's a Kubrick reference within a Kubrick reference. That is right. James Earl Jones, who plays Mr. Myrtle in Sandlot, was in Doctor Strange. Wow, you're absolutely right. Uh, James Earl Jones, what can you say about the man? The kids on the set were blown away at the opportunity to hang out with Darth Vader it's himself. Darth Vader, yeah. The voice of Darth Vader. Did you know that James Earl Jones overcame an incredibly difficult stammer and he basically refused to speak for years as a kid? I did. Now he's like one of the most beloved voices of our time, him and Morgan Freeman. Incredible. I didn't know that until researching this. Anyway, he was on set to play Mr. Myrtle, the owner of The Beast, aka Hercules, and a former pro ball player who knew Babe Ruth. The kid who played Tommy Repeat Timmons, a guy by the name of Shane Obazinski, I think I got that right, told the Sports Daily, we all knew who he was, so there was that anticipation of meeting Darth Vader. I believe he was only on the set for a day, so we all had a moment where we got to meet him during lunch hour before shooting. And shockingly, James Earl Jones was a last-minute addition to the cast. In fact, they were two weeks into shooting and they still didn't have an actor to play Mr. Myrtle, which I guess their shooting schedule you know, meant that it wasn't a problem, but... Seems like they're kind of close. Holy uh, shit, who else would have been in the running, man? I, yeah, I don't know. The, I mean, the only reason that they landed on James Earl Jones was that the assistant director of The Sandlot, a guy by the name of Bill Elvin, suggested him because he'd worked with him on another iconic baseball movie, 1989's Field of Dreams, along with a guy who plays Babe Ruth in The Sandlot, Art LaFleur, marking the second time he would play a long-dead ball player that appears in a dream sequence. And it's hilarious to me that 
James Earl Jones is in two of the most beloved baseball movies of all time, Field of Dreams and The Sandlot, and he doesn't really much care for baseball, much like you. He told the website <laughs> Michigan Live recently, I was not into baseball. The only Major League Baseball game I ever took my son to was out at Anaheim. It was a nice day, and that's what was important. I love this <laughs> lukewarm description of going to a baseball game. I sat there. Baseball slow enough that when the flock of birds came over, you can look up at them and just enjoy the day. Oh, man, I had no idea I had this much in common with James Earl Jones. You just go to baseball games, look at a flock of birds flying overhead. Yeah, so baseball's uh, not really his thing. Um, so I guess despite being a meso-meso on baseball, he agreed to take the gig. And David Mickey Evans has said that the character of Mr. Myrtle was written with no ethnicity in mind, but it was James Earl Jones himself who suggested that he have a backstory as a former Negro Leagues ball player. And the hat that the pitcher Kenny DeNunez wears in the movie bears the logo of the Kansas City Monarchs. And they were a uh, Negro League team active from 1920 to 1965. Uh, Mr. Myrtle, James Earl Jones, famously the owner of the dog known as the Beast, uh, which we later find out at the end of the movie that his real name is Hercules, which Just is the like name the real dog, name of the real dog that bit director David Mickey Evans' little brother. Hercules, for anyone who didn't grow up watching Kevin Sorbo, <laughs> uh, large, large man, a large man in Greek mythology, the strength of several men. Fitting because the dog that portrayed Hercules was not real. It was a large puppet. So big that it towered over the child actors and it was built by uh, animatronics designer Rick Lazzarini who designed costumes for space balls. I bet he did Pizza the Hut probably, Pizza the Hut, right? Yep. Yep. I think so. Um, one of the only scenes in which Hercules was a real dog or actually two dogs, two English Mastiffs, which are these enormous terrifying bulldog-like dogs that I mean, it's like a bulldog and a St. Bernard put together. Yeah. These things weigh like 200 pounds. Um, and it's when he hugs Smalls after he's freed from the fence um, that falls on him when they're recovering the Babe Ruth ball. And, you know, Hercules slobbers all over Smalls. But getting the dog to kiss on demand was difficult. So they got around this by putting what uh, Geary described as a whole jar of Gerber baby food on the side of my face. Quote, that dog had a field day on my face. <laughs> uh, they used a real dog for some of the shots in the chase scene where Benny and his pair of PF flyers sprints through the town with the beast and Hercules in hot pursuit. Evan said this scene took a week to shoot for all the reasons that you would expect. Um, the classic WC Fields quote comes to mind here. Never work with children or animals. <laughs> And the scene, you know, they chase him through a lot of, uh, I guess, Salt Lake. No, was it Salt Lake City? No, it was or? Salt Lake City. Yeah, yeah they chase so. him through the, the beautiful downtown of Salt Lake City, famously <laughs> known as the Paris of Utah. Uh, the English Mastiffs, <laughs> as a two hundred pound dog would in Utah summer, like to sit around nice, cool places and take up space in snore, um, according to uh, Evans. Which, yeah. 110 degrees. They probably didn't want to do a lot of running. It's funny to think that this chase scene was actually harder than shooting a fake game in a Major League Baseball stadium, but it was. 
In the flash-forward ending of the movie, we see that Benny has grown up to become a professional baseball player for the Dodgers, and Smalls becomes a sportscaster. The filmmakers wanted to film this scene at Dodger Stadium, but there was a problem when they couldn't get the request approved. But thankfully, cinematographer Anthony Richmond, the guy who I believe purchased the Playboy for Squints, uh, was apparently friends with the team manager Tommy Lasorda, who pulled some strings and ultimately managed to secure a date for the production crew to film the sequence. And when Benny the Jet is shown all grown up and playing for the Dodgers, he's wearing number three, the same number that Babe Ruth, who appeared to him in a dream sequence in the movie, wore when he played for the Yankees. I thought that was nice. And now for this episode's It Belongs in the Museum segment. <laughs> in the final scene of the movie, you'll notice that the adult Scott Smalls is wearing the distinctive baseball cap he wore as a child at the start of the movie. The ugly one with the trout on it that Benny the Jet told him to burn because it was so hideous. Apparently, he didn't take his advice because he wears it at the end of the movie when the adult Benny steals home at Dodger Stadium and he's working as a sports announcer. The sheer randomness of that hat and its ugly fish logo has made it kind of a crucial part of the film's lore among fans. And also with Tom Geary, who played Child Smalls. He says that he desperately wanted to keep that hat, telling Time Magazine in 2013, I love that big-ass ugly trout hat. It was a gross hat. I was looking for it a while back, and my parents called up Fox because I couldn't take it with me when we finished shooting because the sports announcer needed to wear it, the guy who played the adults version of Smalls. But they called up, and I guess it had been misplaced at the wardrobe place at Fox. So if anyone finds that hat, tell them to email me. I'll pay top dollar for it. Well, some money at least. This was in 2013, and I don't believe there's been an update so far. Small's big-ass ugly trout hat was among the material that was lost during the Universal, Universal Fire. Fire. I want to do a quick sandbar and PF Flyers, if I, sidebar and PF Flyers if I can. Um, yeah. PF Flyers, invented in part with B.F. Goodrich of oh, wow. the tire Goodriches. And P.F. Um, do, you know, do you know what P.F. stands for? No. Posture Foundation. No way. That's yeah. so not cool. I would have thought it would be like pushing fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously anyone with eyes can tell that these look like Chuck Taylors, right? Yeah, yeah. So these were designed in 1935. Did they predate Chuck Taylors or Converse rather? Are they the Hydrox of the Converse Oreos? Yes, actually they are. Because in 1970, Converse bought out PF Flyers. And this led to a monopoly in the shoe market. And in 1975, they were split by an antitrust lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let's see what else we have. Uh, 1958, Bob Cousy of your beloved Boston Celtics, uh, the first athlete to be endorsed by a shoe brand. That was 1958. What? Wow. Flyers. Yeah. By the 60s, they had one fifth of the canvas sneaker shoe market in the U.S., so, yeah, it's funny to me that like, growing up with Chuck Taylors being like the hot, cool canvas shoe, being like, what the hell are Pia Flyers? But they came first, and then Converse bought them, and then they got broken up by an antitrust lawsuit. Uh, love that. In addition to falling out of contact with the ugly-ass trout hat, <laughs> he also fell out of contact with his Sandlot castmates. Like summer camp friends, they lost touch with one another. Smalls later said, I was the only guy from the East Coast, except for Shane, who played Tommy Timmons, who was from Florida, so I never really kept in touch. For a few years, we'd do Christmas cards, but yeah, never really kept in touch, which is a shame. 
And this is less a fascinating fact and more of an uncanny coincidence, but when the narrator explains what became of all the kids from that summer at the end of the movie, he makes a comment that Bertram Weeks, quote, got really into the 60s and was <laughs> never heard from again. Grant Gelt, who played Bertram Weeks, was later cast in the 1999 TV miniseries The 60s, which was his last credited role as an actor. That's wild. I loved that miniseries. Of course you up. did. I taped it and used to watch it all the time. Julia Stiles is in it. Jeremy Sisto's in it. Jerry O'Connell's in it. It's got a crazy cast. Um, speaking of things that were actually a success, The Sandlot uh, made over $34 million off that budget of just $7 million. The cigar-chomping executive, surely excited about that, went on to make estimated $76 million. Holy sh**. Almost 11 times its budget and home release. That is wild. Yeah. But, you know, going back into the reviews, not a unanimous decision. Roger Ebert gave it three stars, comparing it to A Christmas Story. Mm, yeah. It, yeah. Incisively saying both movies are about gawky young adolescents trapped in a world they never made and doing their best to fit in while beset with the most amazing vicissitudes. Great job there, Roger. Did you know that uh, the guy who wrote The Christmas Story is on a Charles Mingus record? What? No. Funny enough. Oh, my God. Bringing it back. In Jerry Maguire, when she's listening to, she's she he goes into her apartment. He's like, what are you listening to? It's a Charles Mingus song called Haitian Fight Song. That song is on a record called The Clown. The song The Clown features spoken word narration by Gene Smart. Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. How about that? Uh, Janet Maslin, long of the New York Times, uh, said Evans wrote and directed The Sandlot, quote, as if it were stunningly momentous, even though nothing about his modest coming-of-age comedy demands anything like this awestruck approach. And you mentioned that Mas Janet Maslin was once married to Bruce Springsteen's manager, John Landau. Yes, indeed. This movie almost feels like a Bruce Springsteen song. That kind yeah, absolutely. of it does. You kidding me? take on, on this period of one's life. Also, all those damn names. Right. <laughs> you telling me that like on Greetings from Asbury Park, Bruce Springsteen didn't write about Tommy Timmons, Bertrand Weeks. Yeah. Benny the Jet, Rodriguez. Kenny DeNunez. Yeah. Those are absolutely Bruce Springsteen-ass yeah. character names. Yeah, I don't think she's married to John Landau anymore, so maybe that's why she hated the movie. Bad memories. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, we won't talk about the sequels as was the way with many things that made any degree of money in the 90s the, the, the Sandlot spawned two direct-to-video sequels first of which was predictably titled The Sandlot 2 in 2005 I would have thought it was earlier than 2005 12 years. good lord uh, that plot centered around a rival girls team who want to share the Sandlot uh, and it went back to the well for the idea of a terrifying dog who lives beyond the wall that separates the Sandlot from Mr. Myrtle's house, although they call the dog The Great Fear. I think the movie was set in the late 60s, so that has more of a uh, a 60s-style name. It's a considerably more Cormac McCarthy name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not a single member of the original cast appeared in the film. Uh, Tom Geary... Played small, so he was never even contacted about signing on for these. But in the second sequel, 2007, God, they made a third. The, the Sandlot trilogy concludes in 2007. Wait till um, you hear the plot. The Sandlot, colon, heading home. Uh, one member of the original film made an appearance. Squints, 
played by friend of the podcast, Chauncey Leopardi. <laughs> uh, apparently the plot of this stars Luke Perry as a man who gets transported from 2005 back to 1976 to relieve his childhood. 14 years after the original movie, they made a movie about a time-traveling Luke Perry. Isn't that your whole thing about traveling back in time? Yeah, oh, very much so, yeah. Good lord. In 2018, speaking of misbegotten sequels, it was announced that a prequel, Sandlot, was in the works at 20th Century Fox. Co-written by the original film's writer and director, David Mickey Evans, alongside Austin Reynolds. Who the hell's Austin Reynolds? Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know. Uh, Evans is also said to be directing a Disney Plus TV series that will be set in the 1980s. Oh, Jesus. And we'll be seeing the original cast returning as adults. As for the prequel film, as we mentioned, it was announced in 2018. Still has no title or cast. So, folks, place your bets. Oh, God. It's going to be in the 80s. They're all going to have like, oh, God. I wouldn't even want to. No. No. Moving on. Jordan, take us home. Oh, no. No, it gets worse. (laughs) As if the possibility of ill-conceived remakes and prequels aren't bad enough. I have worse news for Sandlot fans. If you want your memories of this film and the characters to remain pure and unsullied, I suggest you stop listening right now. We'll catch you next time. The rest of you, proceed at your own peril. I got bad news about some members of the cast and some misfortunes that befell them, mostly self-created, in years to come. We will start with Tom Geary, who played Smalls. He had a fairly active career as a child star. He played Matthew Turner in the Lassie movie in 1994, the year after The Sandlot came out. In later years, he had bit parts in non-kid-friendly movies like U571, Black Hawk Down, Mystic River, and The Revenant. In an interview he did a few years back, he talked about working in a hospital as a patient transporter in between acting gigs to support his three kids. And it's in the town where he grew up, so a lot of people know him, and they affectionately refer to him as Smalls, which I think is adorable. He said, I've come to kind of embrace it. If you can't beat him, join him, you know? So, that's cute. But then, in 2013, he was arrested for headbutting a cop. <laughs> that's a Springsteen song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's well, or an M. Night Shyamalan twist, but... Uh, It went down as he was preparing to board a United Airlines flight out of Houston's Bush Intercontinental Airport when he was deemed, quote, too drunk to fly, according to TMZ. Who among us? Police were called in to take him into custody, but he didn't want to go quietly. He reportedly became, quote, belligerent and verbally abusive towards the responding officer. According to Ace Showbiz, Geary tried to kick the officer in the face before ultimately headbutting him. He was subsequently arrested and booked on a charge of felony assault of a police officer. He was later released on his own reconnaissance after posting a $5,000 bond. And he was, quote, notably absent weeks later when the other Sandlot alums reunited to celebrate the film's 20th anniversary. Bummer timing. Maybe he was going out on on a press tour for it or something. Um, It gets worse. (laughs) I have even worse news concerning Benny the Jet Rodriguez. The actor who played him, Mike Bitar, took a job as an L.A. firefighter. However, he was placed on six months unpaid suspension in early 2017 after facing felony assault charges for his involvement in the beating of a grad student. (laughs) It went down on Halloween 2015 when Mike and several other firefighters confronted 22-year-old Samuel Chang, who was handing out candy in their neighborhood to trick-or-treaters. 
Chang claimed that kids couldn't come to his parents' house in a gated community, so he walked down the street handing out candy as he went, dressed in a mismatched Halloween costume that included a Dracula mask and a white Mickey Mouse glove. Okay, that's kind of scary. (laughs) The off-duty fireman approached him and asked to know why he was there. They also asked, for some reason, if the candy was laced with drugs. I don't know why they would suspect that. Chang took out his phone and made videos showing the lead fireman dressed in a He-Man costume with bulging fake muscles, repeatedly asking Chang why he was on, quote, their block. Chang told the police that he smelled alcohol on all the men's breath. The firemen all later claimed that Chang was harassing kids and he had his pant zipper partway down. Chang denies it. Whatever the case, the situation ended with the fireman chasing him and pinning him to the ground in a chokehold until he fell unconscious, beaten so badly that his pulse stopped, and the same firefighters who attacked him had to revive him with CPR. That is a short story worthy of William Faulkner. (laughs) Yes, the guy would remain hospitalized for weeks, suffering a hemorrhage, kidney failure, severe head trauma, and other injuries. Mike Vitar and others were charged with felony assault, and he pled no contest to a reduced charge of misdemeanor battery and was suspended without pay for six months. But then he returned to full duty. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) On to, uh, yeah, yeah. You could have stopped. I am. I should have just stopped recording this and let you just punch yourself out on the ropes for the rest of the episode. (laughs) Uh, Actor Marty York, who played Yeah Yeah, also appeared on uh, Boy Meets World, Saved by the Bell, The College Years. Wings. (laughs) Wings and more. People love that show. I love Wings. I love Becker. Do you remember Becker? Oh my God, with Ted Danson. Ted Danson's post-cheers work. Yeah. In, uh, in non-dancing news, Yaya's IMDb page went cold for over a decade until 2010 when he showed up in a short film called The Trainer. Uh, possibly because um, in the intervening period, a video surfaced online of an expletive-laden video in which York drunkenly harasses an interviewer, threatening to beat him up because he's from Brooklyn. Well, because he he him no he himself is from Brooklyn and yeah. anyone from Brooklyn has the capability of doing that. No, he's not wrong. Uh, repeatedly, <laughs> Benson Hurst uh, <laughs> repeatedly lifting up his shirt and yelling Yahtzee. <laughs> you gotta see this clip. It's like bootleg the situation. It's not nice. He was also arrested for domestic violence in 2009. So, oh boy. Uh, also keep, not nice. Yeah, here we go. Keep keep rolling. Ham, your beloved ham. Thankfully, he had a slightly happier ending. Uh, he played basically the same character in The Big Green uh, with the kid who played Squints. Patrick Renna has gone on to have a steady acting career, appearing mostly on television. He's been in shows like Home Improvement, Boy Meets World, ER, and The X-Files. Off screen, he is very active in Scientology, which for reasons of personal safety and legal, we will not comment further on. He helped find the church's Los Feliz mission, a new home in 2013, saying the building would, quote, help the individual change conditions and live a better life. So there's that. Um, Boy Meets World, funnily enough, is basically a post-Sandlot grad program welcoming veterans like Patrick Ham Renna, Chauncey Squins Leopardi, 
Marty Yaya York, Brandon Kenny Janunez Adams, and Grant Bertram Weeks Gelt, as well as the late Art LaFleur, who you remember played uh, the the late Babe Ruth, the great Bambino in the dream sequence. So if you're feeling nostalgic about the Sandlot, simply watch the entirety of Boy Meets World. Yes. Yes, we are not going to dwell on the bad. Like the Sandlot, we're not going to focus on the world as it is, but the world as it should be. This beloved film is a high point in the lives of all who worked on it. In numerous interviews, pretty much all of the cast have described the production as the best summer of their lives, and it continues to touch people to this day, nearly 30 years later. For the 20th anniversary in 2013, fans rebuilt the Sandlot in the privately owned field in Utah, and many of the actors made a pilgrimage to the site for a special anniversary screening on the exact field where they filmed it. I think that's so cool. Yeah. David Mickey Evans, the man who drew on his traumatic childhood to create this cherished movie, was moved to tears by the outpouring of support from the community. The outpouring of support he didn't have as a kid. He said the film, The Sandlot, was made with the same amount of love that the people have for it. Before adding, it was the greatest summer of our lives. And I think that is the perfect way to say farewell to this summer. I hope it was a good one for all of you with many more ahead of you. You are, in fact, not killing me, Smalls. <laughs> uh, folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.